Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, Whether you're joining us in person or online, thank you for joining worship uh, with us this morning. Our ministry theme for this year has been simply following Jesus. And by the grace of God and for the glory of God, we want to be a church that believes Jesus, trusts Jesus, obeys Jesus, and lives in a manner that is worthy of Jesus. In other words, we want to be a church that follows Jesus. And to help us do that, we've been studying the gospel of Luke this year, and we've been calling this series Following Jesus Through the Book of Luke. And our goal for this series has been to follow Jesus around as he moves through the book of uh, Luke, and we've been paying careful attention to the things that he did and to the things that he said. And as we watch his compassionate and loving actions, and as we listen to his true and life-giving words, it is my hope that we would be encouraged to follow Jesus, no matter how hard that may be at times, especially during a pandemic. Now, the title of today's sermon is Jesus and the Resurrection. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, and we're going to read from verse 27 to 40. Today, we're going to have another opportunity to listen to Jesus and to believe what he said about the resurrection and about the life to come. So, people of God, this is the Word of God. Would you please give it your careful attention? There there came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there was a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and, and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left uh no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any question. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Is there life after death? At some point in our lives, this is a question that all of us will ask ourselves seriously, and especially as we get older and as we begin to lose loved ones to death. Most people hope that there is life after death, but many doubt that there is. But if there is life after death, then I want it, don't you? But who can tell us? Who has the authority to tell us that there is life after death? And if there is life after death, who can tell us what it's like? 
As Christ followers, we believe that Jesus has the authority to tell us because we believe that he is the Son of God and that he came down from heaven to reveal to us the things of God and the things of heaven. And today in our text, Jesus tells us that there is life after death, that there is a heaven, that there is an eternal life in the resurrection. So here's my outline for today's sermon. Two points. First, the question of the Sadducees. And second, the answer of Jesus. Before we consider the question that the Sadducees brought to Jesus, let's first consider who the Sadducees were. So who were the Sadducees? Well, they were a part of the religious establishment in Israel, along with the Pharisees, even though they had deep disagreements with the Pharisees. The, Pharise- uh, the, the Sadducees uh, were the upper-class educated families who inherited the priesthood. So they had status and honor because they belonged to the religious elite. But they also belonged to the social elite because they were very wealthy. Because they inherited the priesthood, they got to control the temple and the business of the temple, which was selling animals for sacrifices and exchanging money. And all of the proceeds from the temple business went to the Sadducees, and that made them very wealthy. So these were the people who got rich off of religion. Now, even though the Sadducees were a part of the religious establishment with the Pharisees, they had sharp theological and political differences from the Pharisees. Now, theologically, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees, according to verse 27, denied that there was a resurrection. And according to the story in Josephus, the Sadducees wanted to get rid of the persistence of the soul, penalties and death, death's abode, and rewards. They basically said that the soul perished along with the body. They said that there was no life after death, there is no heaven, there is no hell, and there is no judgment day waiting for anyone. As the church joke goes, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And the basis for their denial of the resurrection was a strict interpretation of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, the Torah was the only part of the Old Testament that the Sadducees believed was the word of God. They rejected the prophets and all the other parts of the Old Testament. And they claimed that there was not one reference to the resurrection in the Torah, let alone any clear teaching about the resurrection in the Torah. And since the Torah, in their opinion, didn't talk about the resurrection, they denied the resurrection. Now, although the Sadducees and Pharisees were part of the same religious establishment, again, they were always in conflict with one another. First, they disagreed theologically. The the Pharisees believed in the resurrection while the Sadducees denied it. The Pharisees believed in judgment, heaven, hell, and angels while the Sadducees uh, denied all of those things. But they also disagreed politically. The Pharisees wanted to overthrow the Roman oppressors, right? While the Sadducees were willing to cooperate with Rome in order to maintain their political power. Think about this. Rome allowed the Sadducees to still work the temple and its business. They're still getting rich, so they wanted to do whatever it took to make sure Rome allowed them to keep running the temple. Theologically, the Pharisees were more conservative, while the Sadducees were more liberal. But politically, the Sadducees were more conservative, while the Pharisees were more liberal and progressive. 
but their mutual hatred of Jesus brought these two groups together as allies against Jesus. So I want you to notice this. In the first half of chapter 20, which we looked at last week, we had the Pharisees trying to take down Jesus with a political question. And today, in the second half of chapter 20, we have the Sadducees coming to Jesus, trying to take him down with a theological question. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus was opposed by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by both the conservatives and the liberals of his day? You see, if you follow Jesus, you won't fit neatly into either category, and you will be criticized by both conservatives and liberals alike. If you follow Jesus, if you seek to obey and believe all that Jesus commanded and taught, then you will be too liberal for your conservative friends, and you will also be too conservative for your liberal friends. But that's okay. Because as Christians, our goal is not to be conservative or liberal. Our goal is to be biblical. And that means on some issues, you will seem too conservative. And on other issues, you will seem too liberal. Here's some real talk, okay? This dynamic also plays out in the church. Because in the church, there are both conservative-leaning Christians and liberal-leaning Christians. For example... When I talk about issues of biblical sexuality and marriage or about the sanctity of life in the womb or, or the importance of the family or when I talk about sexual immorality and homosexuality as sins, it makes the conservative-leaning Christians very happy while it makes the liberal-leaning Christians very uncomfortable and very nervous. And at the same time, when I talk about issues of justice, or about the sanctity of life outside the womb, or about the importance of caring for the poor, or or when I condemn the sins of racism and oppression, it makes the liberal-leaning Christians very happy, while it makes the conservative-leaning Christians very nervous and very uncomfortable. Jesus made both the religious conservatives and the religious liberals of his day uncomfortable And those who follow Jesus will do the same. Let me put it this way. If you follow Jesus, if you want to be thoroughly and comprehensively biblical, then be prepared to be criticized by both the people on the right and the people on the left. As a follower of Jesus in America, you won't fully feel at home in either political party, in either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. You see, there will be things that you support and protest in both parties. And if you speak up, you will be criticized for being too conservative on some issues, and you will be criticized for being too liberal on certain issues. If you're a follower of Jesus, be prepared for that. It happened to Jesus, and it will happen to you. And friends, believe me, it happens to me a lot. But that's okay. Because we follow the lamb, and not the donkey, and not the elephant. And always remember this. As a Christ follower, you're to be gracious and kind in how you respond to and interact with all of your critics, whether you're conservative critics or your liberal critics. We're always to maintain kindness and grace in all of our interaction. And sometimes, 
It's wiser to disengage and agree to disagree than to continue to fight and argue with people who love to fight and argue. So the question uh, that the Sadducees brought to Jesus, it was a trap question, wasn't it? The Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus with a political question, but they failed. And now the Sadducees bring a theological question. Now, in order to discredit the idea of the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees posed a hypothetical case of a woman who was married to seven brothers uh, through what was called leveret uh, marriage. Levirate, I don't even know how to say it. Levirate or leveret marriage. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, the law of God made a gracious provision for childless widows called leveret marriage. Now, this law obligated a man to marry the childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the name of his dead brother and to ensure that the inheritance of his dead brother would stay in the family. But it was also this. Most women at that time were completely dependent on their husbands for both protection and provision. And this merciful law ensured that no widow would ever be left out in the cold that a widow would be taken into the family of her dead husband's brother and she would be taken care of. And if she could have a son with her dead husband's brother, then her dead husband's inheritance would go to her son. And so here was the hypothetical question by the Sadducees. A woman was married to a man, but he died, and he didn't give her any children. And then she married his brother, And then he died without giving her any children. And this man had six brothers, and she ended up marrying all of them. And they all died without giving her any children. And then last of all, she died. And so the tricky, crafty question from the Sadducees was this. Jesus, in the resurrection, which of these seven men will be her husband since all of them had her as wife? Now, the intent of their question was to make the doctrine of the resurrection uh, look ridiculous and by extension to make Jesus look ridiculous if he tried to answer their question. So let's see how Jesus answered this question from uh, from the Sadducees. Now, there are uh, are two main parts to Jesus' answer. In the first part of his answer, Jesus said that their question was flawed because it uh, was based on a flawed assumption. See, during the time of Jesus, the Jews believed that there was this radical continuity between the present life and the next life. They thought that the resurrection was just an eternal extension of the earthly life, but under just better and more glorious conditions. And they believed that the things in this life would continue in the life to come, such as marriage. So if you were married to someone in this life, then it was believed that you'd be married to the same person in the next life, but for all eternity. And Jesus began his response by negating their assumption of that kind of continuity between this life and the next life. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus made a clear clear distinction between this life and that life, doesn't he? And Jesus said, in this age, people marry, but in that age... People no longer marry. So the question that the Sadducees were asking rested on a false assumption. They assumed if if there was a life to come, then married people would still be married to the same person for all eternity. 
But Jesus said that in some ways our existence in the next life will be very different than our existence in this life. And one of those differences is, is this. There will be no more marriage in heaven. Now from the first part of Jesus' answer to the Sadducees, we can learn three truths about the resurrection and about heaven, according to Jesus. Here's the first truth. Jesus said that there is a heaven and you must be considered worthy to attain it. We see this in verse, in verse 35. Jesus said, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Everyone will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to eternal life in heaven and others will be resurrected to eternal death in hell. And only those who are considered worthy will be resurrected to eternal life in heaven. Now, this raises a very important question, doesn't it? If I want to go to heaven after I die, if I want to be resurrected to eternal life in heaven, then what must I do in order to be considered worthy of it? Now, Jesus didn't give us the answer to that question in our text today, but the rest of the Gospel of Luke and the rest of the New Testament tells us that answer, doesn't it? You see, as sinners, we are not worthy of resurrection unto eternal life in heaven. We know that. In fact, what we deserve, what we are worthy of, is condemnation and eternal death for our sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he sent his one and only son to save us through his sin-atoning death and with his resurrection from the dead. And now whoever would believe in Jesus, that person, apart from any good works that he could ever do, would be considered worthy of resurrection and eternal life in heaven. Friends, we become worthy of resurrection not by working for Jesus and trying to make ourselves worthy with our own righteousness, but by trusting Jesus who makes us worthy by giving us his own righteousness, which we receive by faith alone in Christ alone. We become worthy of resurrection to eternal life in heaven, not by hiding or denying our sins, but by confessing our sins. And by bringing our sins to Jesus and asking Jesus to forgive us for our sins for the sake of his precious blood that he shed on the cross for us. And here's the second truth. Jesus said that there is no more death in heaven. And we see this in verse 36 where Jesus said, for they cannot die anymore. After we are resurrected from the dead, we can never die again. We will be unable to die. And that's because, according to Jesus, we'll be made like the angels. In what ways will we be made like angels? Angels are immortal. They cannot die. And we will be made like angels. And we, too, will be unable to die after we are resurrected from the dead. And, in fact, that's the reason why there is no more marriage in heaven. Because there is no more death in heaven. For now, there has to be marriage. There has to be procreation or else humanity would die off in one generation. But in heaven, there is no more death. And that means that marriage and procreation will no longer be necessary for the continued existence of humanity. And here's the third truth. Jesus said that there is no more marriage in heaven. And we see that in verses 34 and 35. 
Now, I'm sure that there are some mixed responses to this. I can imagine my wife saying, yes, no more marriage in heaven. I don't have to live with Owen and his grumpiness for all eternity. It may be good news for her. But for me, it's terrible news. Oh, no, no more marriage. What am I going to do? You know, to be honest, this is always one of those things that Jesus said that always made me a little sad and always disappointed me. Marriage seems like such a good thing, at least to me, that if there is no marriage in heaven, it makes heaven a little less desirable. The thought of not being married to my wife, Margaret, the thought that the most intimate human relationship that I have along with the most pleasurable human experience of sexual intimacy with my spouse, the thought that that would be no more in heaven makes me a little sad. So if there is no marriage in heaven, then does that mean that earth is better than heaven, at least in this one regard? You know, it wasn't until I grasped the gospel and looked ahead to the consummation of redemptive history, that I realized that what Jesus said was actually good. My mind was radically changed. So yes, in heaven, we won't be getting married. But do you know why? It's because we will already be married. We'll be married to Jesus. Jesus will be our true and eternal spouse. And we will be his bride. And the best and sweetest moments of love and tenderness and intimacy and joy and pleasure that we have ever experienced and enjoyed with our earthly spouses are but glimpses and foretastes of what awaits us in our heavenly marriage to Jesus. Imagine this. Take your best, favorite, and happiest moment with your spouse. Can you think of it? Multiply that by a billion. And that will be just a glimpse of what awaits you with Jesus. And not just for a moment, but for all eternity. You see, friends, heaven will be more than earth, not less. If there is no marriage in heaven, that's because there is something infinitely better than earthly marriage in heaven. There will be heavenly marriage to Jesus. And in our heavenly marriage to Jesus, we will know a love that is infinitely better, sweeter, greater, and more glorious than the love that we have ever known with our earthly spouses. So let me ask you, do you have a happy marriage with a spouse that loves you well? Take heart. The love of Jesus will be infinitely better. And even though your happy marriage will end one day, it will be replaced with an infinitely happier marriage to Jesus that will never end? Or do you have a hard marriage with a spouse who doesn't love you so well? Take heart, for one day you will know the love of Jesus, your true spouse, and he will love you and cherish you as you deserve. And your earthly marriage will not last forever, thank God. One day you will be married to Jesus. Or maybe you're single and you long to be married or to be married again. Take heart, for you are married. You're married to Christ. 
And being married to Jesus is infinitely better and greater than being married to any earthly spouse. One day you're going to see, I know it's hard to believe, but one day you're going to see that you didn't miss out on anything. That you were not disadvantaged in any way if you have Jesus as your true husband. It's like this. Imagine if God gives some people bikes and to some people he doesn't give a bike. Now, when you're nine years old, it can really sting when you don't have a bike, when you see all of your friends riding around on their bikes and having fun. But what if when, but what if when everyone grows up, God gives everyone a Tesla, and everyone gets to drive around in a brand new Tesla? At that time, the people who had bikes when they were nine, year old, nine years old won't care that they had bikes. And the people who didn't have bikes when they were nine years old, they won't care that they didn't have bikes. Why? Because everyone will be so happy with their Teslas that no one will be thinking about bikes anymore. Friends, earthly spouses are like bikes. And Jesus is a Tesla. So whether you have a bike or not, and even if your bike has a flat tire and doesn't work too well, it's okay. Because one day, your Tesla is coming. Now, I know that I'm going to get a lot of critical emails for calling Jesus the Tesla. But I'm just trying to make a point here. Here's the second part of Jesus' answer. Jesus said that even Moses showed that the dead are raised. In verses 37 to 39, Jesus went to a passage in the Torah. In the part of the Old Testament that the Sadducees believed was the word of God. How strategic of Jesus, right? Jesus went to Exodus chapter 3 where God appeared to Moses and spoke to Moses from a burning bush. And God did not say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. Rather, what did God say to Moses? He said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God spoke of them in the present tense. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for centuries before God spoke to Moses. You see, friends, God's statement is true only if those men were still alive. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead and nothing but dust, then God cannot be their God because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Centuries after these men died, God was still calling himself, I am the God of Abraham. And do you know what that means? Abraham was still alive. God is the God of the living. And that means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. So Jesus was showing the Sadducees that even Moses believed that people lived beyond the grave. And since Moses was in the Torah, they should listen to Moses. Now, even though Jesus answered the Sadducees here by appealing to something that Moses said, that the ultimate proof of the resurrection would come in about a week's time. You see, in about a week's time from now, Jesus would offer the ultimate proof of the resurrection. You see, three days after he is put to death on a cross, he will be resurrected from the dead. And in his resurrection, Jesus would offer the ultimate proof that there is a resurrection his own. 
And his resurrection will be the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come for all those that belong to him. So back to our question. Is there life after death? Jesus says, yes, there is. And Jesus alone has to tell us, Jesus alone has the authority to tell us to speak on this matter. Because not only was Jesus the Son of God, but more importantly, Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Jesus himself continued to live after his death. And we look to Jesus and we know that there is life after death. So what? I want to close my sermon with uh, two thoughts or two, two things. First, I have a word of comfort for those of you who are believers and followers of Jesus. If you have lost a loved one in Christ, I want you to know this. Jesus says that he or she is alive right now. God was their God while they lived on earth. And now God still is their God as they live in heaven with him. To my brother Sam Cain and to his sons Owen and Jackson, I want to say this to you. God is the God of Sarah. And that means that Sarah is alive right now because God is the God of the living and not of the dead. Amen? So believe Jesus and believe this, that Sarah is alive today and she is with Christ now in heaven today. And one day you will get to see her and you will be reunited with her. But Brother Sam, I want to warn you. When you see Sarah, she won't be your wife because she will be married to Jesus, her true husband. But that's okay because as good a husband as you were to Sarah, Jesus is an infinitely better one. He's the perfect husband, and he loves Sarah the way you want Sarah to be loved. So take heart in that. And are you a Christian who is afraid of dying? Are you getting older? Are you experiencing more serious sicknesses? And are you afraid of the day that you will die? To you today, I want to say, don't be afraid. Your life will not end with death. You will live beyond the grave. Death is not the end, but it is the door into eternal life in the resurrection. You see, if you are a Christian, when you die, you'll be resurrected to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, and you will live with Jesus for all eternity. So don't be afraid of death. And lastly, I have a word of invitation to everyone here or watching who does not yet believe. There is life after death. There is a resurrection to eternal life in heaven. Do you want it? Do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to live after you die? If so, then I invite you today to believe the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Today, I invite you to believe this. Believe Jesus and live forever. Amen. Let's pray together.
Thank you, Lord Jesus. That for us who believe in you and follow you as the Messiah, thank you that death is not the end for us. Thank you that just as you were raised from the dead, we too will be raised unto eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will live with you and all of your redeemed people in that place where there is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain, and no more dying anymore. Thank you, Jesus, that we have the hope of resurrection. Amen.